Hello and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Structural racism is the way in which laws, policies, practices, and norms combine to sustain negative outcomes for certain populations. One of those negative outcomes is the withholding of resources needed to meet basic needs like access to good food or adequate housing, which in healthcare we often talk about as social determinants of health. Now, if we're going to improve health by addressing the social determinants, we need to understand the degree to which structures are barriers to people and communities having the resources they need to be healthy. And one of those structures is structural racism. How can we quantify the elements of structural racism as they exist at the community level? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here today with Zach Dyer, a medical student at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Dyer and co-authors published a paper in the October 2023 issue of Health Affairs that develops what they call the Structural Racism Effect Index. The index combines structural factors across multiple domains, and they show that higher levels of structural racism are correlated with some negative health measures. We'll discuss the index and the role it can play in improving health in today's episode. Dr. Dyer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, this is a complicated topic. Anytime we try to measure a phenomenon as complex as structural racism, we get into a lot of details and a lot of nuance, that some of which we won't be able to talk about today. But uh, let's just start with the motivation for the work that you did. How did you approach measuring structural racism? And particularly, how did your approach differ from some of the other measures that people have already created to look at uh, similar concepts? Sure. I wanted to start with kind of the motivation and and what got us here. It was really during COVID um, and we were, everyone was noticing these patterns of where you were seeing clusters of people getting COVID, of being hospitalized for COVID, dying of COVID. You know, I think there there are a lot of news stories out there that express some surprise about that, about, you know, that it, it was supposed to be a, an equal opportunity virus. And that's not what we were seeing. And I think, you know, a lot of us folks in public health are saying, well, this is pretty much what we've been saying for a long time. And this is what we expect. And we just wanted to be able to communicate that better to people to, to make it more understandable why that was happening and why, you know, and, and a virus uh, was following the exact same patterns that you see for chronic disease, for things that you don't think would be related, you know, for infant mortality, for all of these different things that that we, we've been studying and talking about for, for decades and trying to address, you know, why are these patterns so entrenched? Why can't we break free of them? And, you know, for a lot of us who have done this work, the social determinants of health and the real root causes to the differences and the way those are distributed are the answer. And we wanted to be able to have more honest and data-driven conversations about those. And structural racism, we believe, is really at the center of all of that. Um, when you're talking about structures like housing policy and transportation and education, you know, what are some of the huge drivers historically that have made differences between, you know, what those look like, what those resources look like in a neighborhood. And as you said, it's not easy to define, oh, this was structural racism and this wasn't. But um, those big patterns that we see that are really reinforcing that keep resources more available to some 
populations um, and less available to other populations, namely Black, Indigenous, and Latina populations, we wanted to be able to have a tool to address those patterns that we're seeing that go, you know, a step beyond some of what was already available, um, which is the second part of your your question is, you know, what makes us different from some of the other things that are out there? And, you know, initially we didn't say we need to be able to measure and talk about structural racism. We're going to have to build it because that's um, a huge pet peeve of mine is to not just go and see what's already out there. And if it works, it works. But there are basically two buckets of different measures that that are out there. Um, that we were trying to see if the if you know would be fair um, you know equivalents for measuring structural racism and one are measures that already say you know here we are measuring structural racism um, and what we found from those is that uh, they really look at a single dimension um, they, maybe they're looking at housing maybe they're looking at segregation um, maybe they're looking at criminal justice and those are measures of a certain type of structural racism or a certain area of structural racism um, but they weren't really you know looking across all the different systems that are really a part of these patterns that we talk about that are, you know, a part of structural racism. Uh, One of the definitions that we use when we talk about this uses the term mutually reinforcing inequitable systems. And we weren't seeing that really measured and talked about. How are all those systems kind of working together? The other kind of bucket of measures that are out there are measures of social determinants of health. And a lot of them there are good measures out there that look at, you know, neighborhoods, um, and that's what we believe is a, an appropriate geography for looking at structural racism, that a lot of these policies that we that we think about as are implemented at the neighborhood level in some way. So we wanted to, uh, you know, I think a good measure of structural racism is looking at the neighborhood. Exactly what that means is, you know, to be uh, discussed, but the measures that are out there that were, you know, geographic measures we're all, I think, missing a, a couple of key components. One of them was particular areas of structural racism or of historically racist policies um, that you didn't see incorporated, like criminal justice, um, like civic participation or, or social cohesion, as we call it, um, that weren't really being integrated into those uh, measures. You're also seeing a lot of those measures rely on a single source of data, which is there are a lot of good reasons to use a single source of data, convenience, rep, uh, you know, easy to replicate, but you miss out on some of the nuance that you that you would be able to get if you if you had multiple sources of data. And the way that we think about geography for both of those different kind of buckets of measures out there, um, we couldn't really find a measure that fit exactly what we were looking for. Either the geography was too large, looking at county level, um, and we, you know, we really want to be able to describe what's happening between neighborhoods. You know, why is a neighborhood in one area of Boston doing, um, you know, much better with COVID than another area of Boston? Um, we wanted to be able to to see that more more uh, granularly. One of the concepts you mentioned in answering my question was the importance of looking at things at the neighborhood level. And, you know, we know some sources of structural racism are laws that might be statewide or even national. I'm interested in your focus on the neighborhood. And we also have published in health fairs plenty of papers that use different kinds of social risk measures at the neighborhood level. So I'd like to understand both your your focus on neighborhood and how you're thinking about this differently than some of those social risk factors. 
you know, we focus on the neighborhood as the, in this paper, the unit of analysis for some of the analyses, but also that is how the um, index that we've created varies. It varies by census tract specifically. There are a few different reasons we do that. One is uh, data availability. It's kind of the most granular you can get where we really trust the data and there is data available. It's also, a, a, I think, a fairly good proxy for neighborhood. It's, you know, census tracts around 4,000 people. It's the people who are generally around you. It looks different in a rural area than it does in an urban area, but, you know, we think that's a, a pretty good measure. And there are, you know, when you talk about the policies that contribute to structural racism, they do vary widely. It could be a national policy. It could be a state policy. It could be, a, you know, county policy in terms of the way certain things are implemented. But those policies aren't always implemented equally across neighborhoods. And that's, uh, you know, we see those in some of the outcomes that we're looking at. So you take, uh, for example, education policy. So if you're looking at um, how schools are funded, that is generally a statewide policy of this is how we fund our schools in the state. But that really varies when you look at uh, some states are going to vary that by county, some states are going to vary that by municipalities, some states are going to vary that by neighborhood. And it's really driven by what the property taxes are or what the state allocates to them. Um, and what we see is that those resources also follow those patterns. So even if we're talking about a state policy, um, you really see differences at the neighborhood level. And one of the variables we include is per pupil spending in a school district. And it varies widely. And that's something that we you know, really see as a really important uh, aspect of the resources that are available um, and a driving force to the inequities that we see uh, between ethno-racial groups. So uh, there are other social risk factors out there um, used often for analysis. This sounds different than a risk factor. So how should I think about what your work is relative to those kinds of neighborhood measures? Yeah, there are, there are a number of different measures out there. And in the paper, we compare our index to four commonly used measures. Some of the, you know, the area deprivation index is one that we used for a long time um, that we wanted to be able to compare to because we thought, you know, if this is doing a, a good enough job, then why not? Um, and for the most part, that's that's true. Some of the areas that we saw you know, acute differences um, are in urban areas. That there, some of the data that's used for those indices or or uh, risk scores are kind of hard to understand exactly what's happening in an urban area because you have you know a driving variable like home value, which means that data point means very different things uh, in different parts of the country, but also isn't always telling you everything about an area. You know, if an area is primarily renter occupied, then home value doesn't tell you a lot necessarily about the people who are living in that area. There are a number of different variables we see kind of commonly used. One that we do use in our index and is used kind of in other places that we said, you know, we need a little more nuance about this to really understand this is access to a motor vehicle. Um, again, access to a motor vehicle means something very different in a rural area than it does um, in the middle of the city with good public transportation. So we said, how can we incorporate information like, is there access to public transportation that is really important to if people can access the resources that they need to support health? Um, and that's something that we did. And there were, uh, you know, a few different things that we saw across uh, a lot of these indices that um, or, or risk scores that we 
thought, you know, there's we're missing some of the nuance. And some of that nuance is really going to explain a lot in, in areas where it's important. So I don't want you to walk through all of the domains. Uh, someone who wants to understand those really does need to look at the paper. But uh, it would be helpful, I think, for you to give a quick sense of key domains and particularly why you chose them. I, I won't go through each one. There are nine of them, um, and they're they're all detailed in the paper and exactly what variables go into those. Some of the ones that I think are really critical um, to getting this measure right, criminal justice, I think is really important. It's not something you see really integrated into these types of measures. Really difficult to get data around criminal justice at the neighborhood level, and we have to do some creative things to pull in some data. Um, but, you know, looking at um, criminal justice, I mean, looks at jail populations, prison populations, um, and law enforcement per capita. So kind of uh, the law enforcement staffing. Because you think about law enforcement, the resources that are put towards law enforcement, and that is a, depending on how you think about it, it's a resource that is in the community. There's money being spent on it. Municipalities that spend a lot have more resources available to them. But exposure to the criminal justice system has been studied and shown to be, you know, not great for outcomes, not great for for health outcomes, for family outcomes, community outcomes. Um, And that's something that we wanted to capture. So criminal justice, I think, is an important domain that we have integrated to provide some more information in this type of measure. Maybe you can pick one more and we'll send our listeners to the paper if they want to get the other uh, seven that are left after you talk about one more. You know, another one is uh, income and poverty. Um, and that's, a, I think, a not a really novel one. Um, the relationship between income and health outcomes or any outcome has been studied pretty thoroughly. Uh, what we wanted to do is to make sure that we were capturing differences um, across the country because our, our measure looks across the country and, and income in you know Mississippi and income in Massachusetts means different things. You know, fifty thousand dollars in Massachusetts means something different than it does in Mississippi. So how do we incorporate that? How do we you know provide some additional context there? And we incorporated something called the supplemental uh, poverty measure, which isn't just a you know the the typical federal poverty measure. Is this is one number that means poverty across the country, which, which isn't uh, always very useful. But we incorporated something that takes into account differences of transportation costs, housing costs, um, health costs that that makes it clearer kind of what different poverty, different communities, what poverty looks like in different communities. Well, I know a tremendous amount goes into this. I want to talk to you about what comes out of it and particularly how it ties to health because that was your initial motivation. We'll cover some of the implications of this measure after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Zach Dyer about uh, measuring the imprint of structural racism on at the neighborhood level. Before the break, we, I think, got a really good understanding of what goes into a measure like this, why it's important, how it differs from some other types of measures. But then, of course, the question is, why do this work? And as you note in the title of the paper, you're looking at the effects of uh, structural racism. And as a health journal, we're particularly focused there. So maybe we could just sort of start at the high level. You 
looked at deciles of the measure uh, of structural racism and you looked at some health outcomes, what did you find? We looked at a number of different health outcomes and, and the primary one that we looked at was life expectancy. Um, and it's something that I think tells a really clear story um, when you're looking at life expectancy by neighborhood. Almost any city that you look at uh, across the country, you'll find a you know, 10-year difference in life expectancy um, by walking you know, less or, or driving less than 10 miles in that city. Um, and we really wanted to be able to talk about why that happens and kind of what the differences are between those neighborhoods um, that you see those outcomes. So one of our, our most important tests was how does our measure do in you know, accounting for the variability in life expectancy in different neighborhoods across the country compared to some of these other commonly used measures out there? And we found that you know, overall, ours does a more consistent job of explaining the variability in life expectancy. Um, and we, wanted, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just kind of an overall average because the country's big and neighborhoods look different. So we looked across different types of neighborhoods. So is it a metropolitan neighborhood, a micropolitan or a, a rural neighborhood? Um, and, and saw the same thing, that the structural racism effect index uh, does a better job of accounting for that variability in life expectancy. Um, and also looked at, uh, because we are talking about structural racism, you know, what does this look like in an area that has high population, people of color, um, a mixed area um, and low population people of color? And is it still predicting life expectancy um, or accounting for the variability in those different areas? Uh, and we found that, yes, it does, and um, more consistent than the other measures that are out there. So the predictive value here is really important. Um, there is something you say in the paper which sort of popped out at me, and and maybe this is too complex for a podcast, but I feel the need to ask it. You describe the index as uh, almost entirely race neutral. And you just spoke uh, very uh, importantly about measuring the levels of the index against various outcomes being a, effective regardless of the racial and ethnic composition of the neighborhood. So help me square this circle because I sort of think, well, if it's a measure of structural racism, it, it's all about race, but that's not the case. Can you help me understand that? Like you said, it's it's kind of complex, but there are a couple of different reasons we wanted this measure to be quote unquote race neutral. And first I'll say what, what that means. So there's no explicit uh, measure of the composition of a neighborhood in the measure. So there's some other measures out there like the um, social vulnerability index that the CDC uses incorporates, you know, what percentage of this neighborhood is um, black or Latina or, or in, indigenous. Um, ours doesn't do that. So we, we didn't want to incorporate that. And there are a few reasons. One is we don't want to conflate the demographics of a neighborhood with vulnerability or deprivation that, you know, that's not the case. And that's another kind of motivating uh, factor in, in, in why have a measure of structural racism. Because a lot of times when we talk about race and, you know, you see this in a lot of research papers, you put in uh, race as a, as a covariate. What you're really doing when you're doing that is, you're using race as a proxy for racism and saying, what are the experiences of racism that this person has, or, you know, this group of people have, um, and that is what it's affecting the outcomes. Um, it's not necessarily the race of an individual. It's their experiences, the individual level, interpersonal level, their community. And we wanted to not just use race as a proxy, um, though it is a 
well-used proxy for racism and say, what are the actual experiences that that people in these neighborhoods are living through? Um, And let's describe that. So I I just think that's really interesting because, um, and as we reach the end of the conversation, of course, the question is, well, how would you like people to use this and what's the value of it? And taking every step possible to make sure that when we're looking at measures that we that have implications for policy that that we use race appropriately in those instances which in many instances the answer is there is no way to use them race appropriately if you have a measure of structural racism that does not incorporate race per se as a measure then you have the ability analytically to think about potential solutions for problems that you're describing the actual origins of them, not the characters of the population affected by them. And that conceptually seems to me to be a huge advance. Now, I, obviously, this will have to be tested and probed and used in different ways. And that's the great thing about publishing something new is that it'll get pressure tested by a whole lot more people than, than us uh, sitting here talking about it. But Conceptually, it seems like a a very positive step to have neighborhood measures that are usable that don't sort of uh, put, if you will, race on both sides of the equation. Well, let's use that, if I may, as a a transition then into um, how you think the index uh, can be used. Uh, You uh, nicely explained at the outset of our conversation what your motivation was in developing it. But COVID isn't the only application, presumably. And uh, you mentioned, of course, your public health background. So how does an index like this help people like you and others uh, understand the world and solve problems in ways that we might not have been able to otherwise? Absolutely. Thank you for asking, because that is the the motivation for for creating this, um, is is to make some change, to work towards, towards equity. And, you know, the word that we come back to a lot is intention. So how do we intentionally work towards equity? It's not something that we can hope for. We hope that that our policies or our programs are going to have uh, an anti-racist effect, meaning that they're going to disproportionately benefit populations of color, that it has to be something you intentionally do. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you you incorporate race into your policies, but it means you have to be thoughtful about it. And you have to know that that's something that you want to do. Because um, as we've seen time and time again, uh, the status quo is is a very powerful force that that inertia um, can carry us forward. And unfortunately, um, we've seen this for hundreds of years that, that the patterns from centuries ago are the same ones that we're seeing today. So the tool, the, the structural racism effect index and, and the different domains in there um, are an opportunity for people to be more intentional with the work that they're doing. So if you're going to you know, invest, if an organization, an institution, like a hospital is going to invest in programs, look at you know, what are those neighborhoods in your community that are struggling the most with, with access to these resources, access to the social determinants of health that we're talking about. Um, if you're trying to figure out if a, a policy that you're going to implement is going to have, you know, who it's going to affect, um, look at the catchment area of that, of the, the policy or, or where you expect, you know, participants in a program to be um, and see, are those really the population that you're going to um, that you're hoping to impact, um, and is that going to work towards equity, or is it going to kind of follow the the same 
um, patterns that we've seen for a long time. You know, I think the other thing that I, from a kind of community health background that I don't want to sell short is the power of being able to tell a story of your community. So, you know, being able to look at your index score and saying, you know, we're, we're doing okay in transportation, but, you know, we really need to think more about housing and think more about criminal justice and the built environment um, and have real investments there to change the situation, to break the patterns, the cycles of disinvestment that we've seen. You know, I, I think that Paper does a good job of kind of pointing out some more uh, specific use cases, but I, I think there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of power in, in having that information um, and being able to kind of set set intention to work towards equity. Well, I'm glad you ended there because, of course, the analytic uh, opportunities are ones I think that we explore often, and uh, you've opened up a pathway for additional analysis. But uh, it is true that simply for for many of the indices, we focus on the number at the bottom and the deciles of the total. But within a community, it can be very helpful to have something that looks at the multiple domains, as your index does. And you can look back at the raw data and say, as you just said, uh, we're doing well in this area or we're, we're ranked high in this area. Um, but here we're ranked lower. And why is that? And what could we do about it? And even before you get to any other types of interventions, just having that sort of uh, awareness of where you stand relative to other neighborhoods and that, that kind of information, I think, can be very powerful. Well, Dr. Dyer, I appreciate your uh, the effort that goes into building something like this truly from scratch. It is quite an undertaking, and I'll be excited to see how others adopt it and whether some of the attributes uh, that make it unique are ones that uh, help us think differently about how to measure structural racism and how to analyze neighborhood variability. You've definitely made a contribution there. There's much more detail in the paper and, of course, uh, even behind the paper even more. But I appreciate your ability to explain it as clearly as you have. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy.